0: What a day we are having, amen? God is good. I ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 2 Peter. We continue our sermon series through the book of 2 Peter. If you would, go to chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 1 here in just a few minutes. If you want to use that pew Bible there in front of you, feel free to do that. It's on page 1,397. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 on page 397. I'll start by introducing you to someone that I've probably never said her name from the pulpit before, but uh, Annette Jackson Warner was my aunt. Now, she died a number of years ago, but she was my aunt. She was my mother's only sister and only sibling. She lived close to us and she was that aunt that had a big part in your lives. You know, you've got those people that are just not in your immediate family, but they're right outside, and they're always just like immediate family uh, right there. I have a lot of memories about her. She had a big stereo, and I was introduced to many musical artists through her collection. She had these headphones that I could plug in and put them on, and then the music was right there. And, I figured out since then that she probably did that on purpose so I could put them on so she didn't have to listen to them, or maybe it's because she liked the music as much as uh, I did. Um, I still listen to much of that music today. I was told that when I was little, just around the age of one, that I fell into a swimming pool and began to make my way toward the bottom, but that it was Annie, as we called her, that jumped in and brought me out of the water. So you could say that without Annie, I may not be here today. But Annie had one chronic problem. She was always late. Always late. Not always late, like in a few minutes behind. I'm talking late Like family dinner is at 6 p.m., so you tell Annie we're having dinner at 5 p.m., so that Annie is only 30 minutes late for dinner. Chronically late. My grandmother, on top of that, would not allow us to begin to have dinner until Annie was there because she only had two children and she wanted both of them there for these meals. And I get that now, but then we're going, where's Annie? She needs to get here. And we would talk to my grandmother and go, just eat without her. That'll teach her. Just, let's just go ahead and eat. We'll save her some. My grandmother would not have it. And so we began to tell Annie earlier and earlier and earlier, just so we could maybe eat on time. Now, as I reflected back, Annie's lateness was not just a poor habit of someone who was not organized, or someone who was seeking to be obstinate. I do not believe that my aunt woke up every day going, they're going to wait on me. I'll just show up whenever I could and please. I don't think that was her attitude. It was more a reflection of her having her own agenda, her own pace, her own priorities, and her own schedule. You see, she did not see herself as late. She was not really phased by the opinions of others, and she never overcame her lateness. She saw everything, even those hour and a half late dinner waiting moments. She saw them as being just fine. Now, perhaps you know people like this, chronically late. Perhaps you have an Annie in your family. We joked this morning around Sunday school classes that since Fred and Rita were getting baptized at 10 a.m. That their Sunday school class, Michael, their class, it's a great class, but they don't even know we do worship before this. They come in, they leave Sunday school and walk right into the sermon. Now, I'm joking. But you guys get it. So we went to them we said, hey, don't forget, Fred and Reader getting baptized at 10. Your whole class is going to want to see and be there. Michael said, I know, we've been told. Michael, were you here on time? Everybody was on time? Okay, that's good. Perhaps you know so. Matthew Henry stated many years ago, back in the 1600s, he said, it's better late than never. And in many circumstances, I can agree. So it's in that backdrop that I ask you to stand with me, and we're going to read from 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of this chapter. 2 Peter chapter 3. Picking up in verse 1, says this, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away from with a great noise, and all the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Thank you, church. You keep your scripture open. You can have a seat. If you're a note taker, get your notes ready. God has something for each of us through his word today. In verse 1, Peter starts off, and this wasn't in my notes, but it, was, it, just, it just hit me. He starts off with the word beloved. And you know, he later on in this passage, beloved. Second Peter chapter 2, Peter was just pounding, teaching about false teachers and false teachers and false teachers. He was just, and he reminds them at the beginning of chapter 3. I love you. Beloved, we share this together. Fred, I love you, Fred. That up there in the baptistry just touched my heart. We are family. And Peter says, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because you're beloved. I love you. I want you to know the truth. Peter says, In case you've gotten distracted by chapter 2 talking about false teachers, false teachers, false teachers, false teachers, he said, I need you to understand that the very reason behind every word that I have said and every word that will be said is because I love you. We, followers of Christ, we get to be family. But let me also share, and I had not even got to step one of my notes yet because of what happened in the baptistry, but do you know what we need to be ready to do is share that love. We come here and we love each other and we are drawn together and the word draws us together even more and we fellowship and we pray with and we do all of this together. Church, we got to take all this that we're getting loaded up on and then we got to go out into this world and if we're not loving on Sunday afternoon, we've missed everything. I can imagine maybe by Wednesday you might be running a little tired of showing love that you got on Sunday. That's what Wednesday night church is all about. We come in and we get us a whole new load so that we can then make it to Sunday. But church, we are loved by God. Peter is telling us we are loved by him and hearing the truth, and then we are to go out in love. But Peter starts off verse 1, he says, Beloved, but he references having written to them at least one time before. Now, historical documents are unclear as to whether he is referring to 1 Peter, which makes sense that if Peter says, both of these epistles I've written to you, that he's talking about 1 Peter and 2 Peter. I can't tell you that historically speaking, I know that to be absolutely the case. But what that does say is if it's not the case, Peter wrote them at least one more time. And I think the more times we can see Peter communicating to the beloved, The truth of God, the better. And he says, I write to you these things. And Peter tells them that whether he's written to them 1 Peter and 2 Peter, or whether it's 2 Peter and some unknown document and letter that he wrote, he tells them that he has a purpose for them. Look at verse 1. I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Remember a few weeks ago, Peter was trying to remind us, remind us, remind us, remind us, because we are a people that forget. And so he reminds us and he says, but so Peter is seeking, he said, I want to stir up your pure minds by these two things as a way of reminder. Peter is seeking to cause them, the beloved, the people that he's reaching to, to look backwards. And that what a reminder does? A reminder causes you to look back at Annie and bring it forward and make an impact. But that's not all Peter says. He goes on in verse 2. He says that you may be mindful of these words. So Peter says, I'm writing this to give you a reminder so you'll look backwards. But I also want you to be mindful, which is different than reminder, mindful. Peter is seeking to cause them to look forward. Being mindful causes people to keep things in front of them to allow them to impact their decisions. Have you ever attempted to say, I'm just going to be mindful today. I'm going to watch. I'm going to be mindful of everything that I say. Doesn't that cause you to sort of guard your lips a little bit? You watch everything that comes out. And Peter is saying, Because of everything I've taught you, I want you to remember, look backwards at what you've been told, but I also want you to be mindful, allow what you've remembered, what you've been told, to carry forward in your life. And Peter is telling them, you're not done. You're not done. He goes on in verse 2, and he says, what do I want you to remember? What do I want you to be mindful of? Verse 2, of these words spoken before. Now, we talked a few weeks ago, but just as a point of reminder, and Peter says it again right here, these words spoken before were spoken by the prophets, so we can see that as a reference to the Old Testament. Then there were the words spoken by Jesus to them, so that we can see that as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the first part of Acts. And then it goes on to talk about how now spoken by the apostles, That would be the remainder of the New Testament. And Peter is saying, beloved, I need you to hold on to the truth. And the truth can be found in God's Word. It can be found in God's Word. Now, just as an aside, how many of you agree that the authority of God, the knowing of God, the direction of God, the guidance of God, the purpose of God can all be found in His Word? Amen. Amen. I don't even need a vote because I know that people who believe that this word is that valuable, there's no reason for me to make there's no reason for me to ask you how many days this week you found yourself in meaningful prayer and Bible study. Because for us to be that wholeheartedly supportive of God's word, knowing that it is that truth, that there's no way that there's anything less than a seven-day commitment that you would have made. It would be absolutely silly for us to claim God's Word, to know to be the authority of God, and then just let it sit on the shelf between Sundays. So, I'm making the assumption that you're in God's Word every single day. The Holy Spirit of God will take that assumption from there in your life, right? I want to encourage you. Be in God's Word. These words contain the truth. But let me tell you, these words help us remember what God has done. But do you know what? God's word is so thorough and so complete that it's not just a reminder of what God has done. God gives us this word so that we can be mindful and look forward and allow it to lead how we live moving forward. God's word knows no time limit. It's good every time you open it had a young man come to me after service last Sunday, and they said, he said, what translation do you use? He said, because I use this, and I'm having trouble following along. And I'm thinking, man, I love the fact that you're following along. And by the way, I told him it's the New King James, and I don't say that it is the best. I just know it's the one that I have historically held on to. And uh, so that's what I preach out of, and that's what the Pew Bibles are right there. But this word, this truth, helps us remind how we got to this point and helps us to be mindful of how we are to live from this point forward. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good thing. Back to verse 1 for just a moment. You're going, Jeff, you just got to verse 2. Don't go backwards. Verse 1 says, I stir up your pure minds. Did you notice that? Your pure minds. Peter is reminding them that placing the word of God as a reminder in their lives and placing the word of God to help them be mindful in the way that they live moving forward in their lives will lead them to a pure mind. Minds that live in accordance to God's word and scripture. Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 4. If you're, right, if you're a note taker, write this down. Verses 8 and 9 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue... If there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, these things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the peace of God will be with you. God's word should have a prominent and impactful place in your life. Church, are you in God's word daily? I pray the answer is yes. I encourage the answer to be yes. If not, you may want to remember, or you may not remember where you've come from if God's Word's not that valuable in your life, and you may not be mindful of where you're going. So, take up God's Word every day, be in God's Word. Verse three, Peter goes on, he said, Knowing this first. Peter is telling them, reminding them of what they should already know that if they are remembering and if they are mindful of what the word has said, he says, know this first. Verse 3 says, scoffers will come walking in their own lust. There will be people that you will find that will not accept the truth, that will not be walking in the truth. They will scoff at what you believe because they don't believe it. What a person believes is based upon what is in their mind. Proverbs 23, 7 says this, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. What you believe has a direct impact on how you live. And if someone doesn't have a belief of God's word and an acceptance of the gospel and Jesus as their savior, and they don't act very good, don't be surprised about that. They cannot act that way when their beliefs are not right. Their lives cannot be right. These scoffers, it's impossible for them to live differently than they think. These scoffers desire meeting their own personal desires, it says, walking in their own lust more than anything, so they reject the truth of God's word. But Peter says we should not be surprised. He said, know this first. God's word tells us this will happen. God's word will effectively lead us through everything we need in life. Let me just give you some examples. If you're a note taker, just jot these scriptures down. John 13, 19, and John 14, 29 are basically the same scripture, and they say this, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Jesus is teaching the disciples, and he says, can I just go ahead and tell you what the, what's going to happen in your future if you're faithful so that when it happens in your future, it won't knock you down. You will go, hey, Jesus told me this was going to happen. Preparation. John 16, 4. But these things, Jesus said, I have told you that when time comes, you may remember that I told you of these things. John 16, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Amen? I love that I do not have to wonder or guests about the things of God. I can know him, I can know his word, and he will bring everything about just as he has promised. Do you see scoffers? Do you run into people in your life that, as we talked about in Sunday school, give you the hand? You walk up to them, you try to live Christ before them, you invite them, you do all these things, and they just don't want anything to do with it. You run into these people, they're everywhere. And I hope you keep running into them. And I hope you keep getting the hand up until the point that they listen. Because if you give up while they're giving you the hand, they will never listen. But if you continue to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming in a way that God will lead and guide you, something will happen. A life lived for Jesus, Jesus said, will draw scoffers. I hope that your life is being lived so well for Jesus that you see scoffers, people that are challenging you. Because if you're not seeing scoffers, applying that scripture reverse-wise, that means that maybe you're not living your life as Jesus-forward, as God's Word would have you. Now, these scoffers, when they come, which they say it's going to happen, they'll have a uh, common theme. Look at verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? These scoffers, these false teachers, they're going to attack the only thing that remains to be attacked, and they're going, where's Jesus? He said he was coming back. Where's Jesus? I don't see him coming back. He's not coming back. They do this in a common way. Verse 4, he is not coming. They go on, they say, he is not involved. Everything has not changed from the beginning of creation. You can see that in verse 4. They're saying, Jesus is not coming back. God put this thing into motion, and he's not involved. He's not interested in what's going on, and nothing's going to change. Nothing has changed. Nothing's going to change. That's what they're going to say. Church, this is a form of deism. D-E-I-S-M, deism. Deism is a belief in a supreme being who is a creator, but who does not intervene in the creation or in the universe. They believe in the moral teachings of the Bible, but not in the divine teachings of who Jesus is. Didn't I tell you and didn't Peter tell us that eventually all false teachers will deny Christ? That's what they're doing. This belief structure, this deism, gives them a validation to live lives according to their own lusts. They say, you live, you die, that is it, and that is all. Now think about that for just a second. Now, it's not true. I do not believe it true. We're going to talk about how true it's not here in just a second. But just imagine, if you are of the belief mindset that this is all there is, That there is no return of Jesus, there is no heaven, there is no hell. If you go for that, and this is it, it makes total sense how they're living, right? They're living as if there's no tomorrow because they believe through deism there is no tomorrow. The reason I encourage you, the reason I seek to live a life differently is, we believe through God's word that not only is there a tomorrow, there's an eternity of tomorrows. Verse 5, we've talked about what deism is, and they're going, he's not coming back, he's never coming back, things that have never changed. And you get into verse 5, and Peter says, but they willfully forget. They forget the words. Now, remember we talked about the words. Don't, we can't get away from what the words are. The words are those spoken by the prophets, the Old Testament, those spoken by Jesus, the Gospels, and those spoken by the apostles, the remainder of the New Testament. So they they. They have forgotten willfully the words of God. They've not allowed the word of God to have an impact in their life. Verse 5 says, by the word of God, creation happened. God who was before. You know, Genesis 1.1, it says, in the beginning, God. You read that correctly. It was before the beginning, God was, and then goes on. And so they're going, these people who teach that there's no return of Jesus, they're willing, they're choosing to forget. They're saying God won't intervene, but then God's word says God did intervene and created everything. New Testament says everything that was made, that was made, was made by Christ. God intervened in the world already but they're just choosing to forget it. And look at verse 6. It says, By the word of God, the judgment of the flood occurred. Again, God intervened again. We know this. You can read it in Genesis. We know the story of the flood. And God saved eight and judged everybody else. And so when people come up and say, we don't believe the word that Christ is coming back, Peter says, don't forget, they're just willingly validating how they desire to live by saying it's not going to happen. When God has intervened in creation, when God has intervened in the flood, those are just two examples that Peter gives us, and we can read all through the word where God has intervened and intervened and intervened. Let me give you the most personal way that God may have intervened. If you know Jesus today, God intervened in your life, right? God took an action to send Jesus. God intervened in a major way. But they willfully forget this. You see, people who reject the truth of God reject the words of God. And therefore, they cannot believe. Verse seven, it says, But the heavens and the earth are now preserved, catch this, church, by the same word. Did you notice this? Peter's told them earlier in chapter one it is the word of God that's helped us get here. The words of the Old Testament, the words of the gospel of Jesus, the words of the New Testament. It is that word that gives us our faith and causes us to grow up. It's that word that says Jesus is returning. That word, the deists believe, is not going to happen because they don't believe this word. Peter said, well, that word has already shown creation. It has already shown the flood. Now it says that the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the same word, God's word. God has promised a coming judgment. A judgment reserved for fire, it says, until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Church, you know the only thing withholding the judgment of God on this world is the Word of God. You know, if you read, there's a lot of people thinking about, well, man's going to destroy the world, it's going to be an atomic this, or a nuclear that, or this, that, and the other. Let me tell you what I believe, and I'm not trying to get into anything other than sticking close to the Word of God. It's the Word of God that will bring on the end of this world. God says, enough. Now man can continue to go and do and go and do, but until God says it's enough, we get days. And when God says it's not enough, we don't get days. Judgment comes only at the word of God. It is God and God alone that retains full authority over time as we know it. And Peter, again, reminds his listeners in verse 8, do not forget. Peter is saying, child of God, remember, our God is not motivated by time. God was before the beginning. God will always be. God exists outside of time. Aren't you glad that God exists outside of time? In the beginning, God jumped into and created something. But, you know, it's hard for us to think about. I told you about Annie. Annie existed outside of time. Now, I don't mean supernaturally or anything like this. I just meant that she didn't care about time. And in a strange but supernatural way, do you know God's not really driven by time? God is above time. God's the creator of time. God is not ruled by time. And Peter says, don't forget that a thousand years is as a day, and a day is a thousand years to God, because God exists above time. Some could say that in God's timing, Jesus only ascended to be with him a couple days ago. You're going, but it's 2,000 years. We don't think in that way, or we do think in that way, but God does not think in that way. It's interesting. We did a little study. We're studying on Wednesday nights through the Psalms, and we started and we're coming through. We just finished 41. But I was in Psalm 90. And in our minds, we go Psalm 90 was written after Psalm 89. Right? We, just, we think this way. It wasn't. Psalm 90 was the first Psalm written. It was written by Moses 1,400 and more years before Christ. But in Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. And then here we are, 1,500 years later, and Peter says, Don't forget what God said. He's not about time. God's not motivated or moved by time. And so I started thinking, so if God's not motivated or moved by time, even though we are very motivated and moved by time, what is God motivated by? Let me read verse 9 again, the whole thing. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, that has to do with time, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See what that says? The Lord has promised... To return. And this, will t- this return will take the church home to heaven. This return will also bring the eternal judgment to those who do not know Jesus as their Savior. Scripture says right here in this 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slack, meaning the Lord has not forgotten. The Lord has not changed his mind. The Lord is not late. goes on to say, not only is he not slack, he is Long-suffering. You see that? He's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish. Long-suffering. But that all should come to repentance. Church, we need to read that as salvation. The Lord's long-suffering is an act of His mercy. Not giving what is deserved. The Lord's long-suffering is an act of His grace. Seeking to give us what is not deserved. Now catch this. The Lord could return today. Church, do you recognize that could happen? The Lord could return today. But in my life or in your life, how many times have we said, oh, I can't, I hope the Lord doesn't come back because I really want to be a grandparent or I really want to be this or I want to go on that trip. You know, we have become so away from the word of God that we don't recognize that what we're saying is, Lord, don't give us what you think we should have. Let us just continue to have what we want. But the Lord could come back today. And do you know that in this moment, if the Lord was going to come back this afternoon, there's not a single one of us that are knowing about it. Anybody tells you they know when the Lord's coming back? Can't know. That's what scripture says. But if the Lord's coming back this afternoon, here's the things that I do know, is if the Lord comes back this afternoon, those who know Jesus are eternally with him in heaven. Right? But let me tell you what also happens this afternoon when Jesus comes back. People who don't know Jesus, they get not an additional second to change their heart. And so when God delays and delays in our minds, God says, I'm not delaying. I'm motivated by love. I'm being long-suffering. I'm waiting. Now, I hope and pray that when we have the invitation here in just a few minutes, that somebody prays to receive Christ. That's what we, that's what we should gather for, right? To, to come to know Christ. I pray that sometime this week... Somebody will come to know Christ. Do you know what God knows? He knows that this week, if his people are faithful and if the truth is lifted up, that people will come to know Christ. And if those people who pray to receive Christ tomorrow, they'll be thrilled that God didn't come back today. Right? Church, we need to understand that when the Lord comes back, it's over. And God says, I'm not late. I'm loving. Because I desire people to come to salvation god's character is love and that is love that motivates him and that's what puts him on whatever time schedule we think he's on he's not working at time he's working in eternity but i read this and i couldn't get this off my mind and this is the twist church that we need to really grab a hold of and so if you've checked out on me i need you to check back in for just a couple more minutes Go back and look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. We've talked about that. But is long-suffering toward... Mine says us. Some translations might say you. No translations say them. And you're going, what's the matter with that? Well, think about this. Read this on. It says but in long suffering toward us or you well that's the people that Peter is writing to look at verse chapter 1 of chapter or verse 1 of chapter 1 of second peter says I'm writing to you the believers verse 1 stirring up your pure minds the believers verse 2 that you may be mindful you all of this in chapter 3 he's telling us who you is verse 9 long suffering to you we need to understand that we have to read this as but god is long suffering toward those who know jesus as savior that's what it says not willing that any should perish do you know who any is not you not us god says I'm long-suffering to you, those who claim Christ as Savior, because I'm not willing that anybody else, the ennies, die and go to hell. And you're going to hold it. We have a you versus any conversation to have right here, right? God is being patient with us, child of God, saved telling us to remember telling us to be mindful preparing us to go to battle you will run into scoffers so that you will faithfully share the gospel so that other people that don't know Jesus can come to know Jesus you're going Jeff so God's waiting on me? Seems like it. Now, I'm not saying that God's waiting on you before he pulls this. But scripture is saying that God is waiting on his people to do their job as assigned by him so that other people will come to know Jesus. You know there's a promise in there, right? God saying, Listen, if you will hold on to the word, if you will be faithful, if you will share your testimony, church, people will come to know Jesus. And God says, that's what I'm waiting on. I'm waiting on people to come to know Jesus. But God has always, and I don't, I can't tell you that I get it because I look at me in the mirror every now and then. But God has always chosen to do his gospel-related work through those people that have expressed faith in Christ. You notice that, right? Always. God desires to work through his people. So let's read this verse one more time. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Toward you, not willing that any, that's everybody else, should perish, but that all, that's everybody else, come to repentance. God desires to see everybody come to know Jesus. Amen? And God has called us to be a witness. John 12, 32, probably one of my favorite verses everywhere. It says, John 12, 30, says, Jesus said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw men to myself. You just walk around and you live for me. You remember the truth. You be mindful of the truth and you live your life effectively for me. I'll draw people to myself. 2 Peter 3, 9 says he's waiting on me. He's waiting on you. And finally, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. Church, there will come a day when the Lord will return. And those of us who know Christ, those of us that are reminded, those of us that are mindful of the word, should motivate us to not be late any longer to take up the cross of Christ. To go be that witness that he's called us to be. Judgment is coming. That should motivate us, the saved. The church, can I tell you that judgment is coming and that should motivate the lost. Christ could come this very afternoon and, no of us know, and none of us know that it's coming at this moment. But it could happen. If you do not know Jesus in this moment, I'm just trying to stay biblically true. Jesus is returning. You have now. I don't know about tomorrow. I don't know about a week from now, but you have now. I encourage you, if you're lost, today could be that day for you to come to know Jesus as your Savior. Amen? Amen. Child of God, I want to encourage you. Share Christ today. You don't know tomorrow either, so we should be busy today. Scripture says that the Father is being long-suffering toward us, waiting on us, because there must be much fruit, much harvest to come. God knows that there are people who will respond to the gospel. Don't wait until it's too late. because, As Matthew Henry correctly said, better late than never. Church, it's time to move forward. Amen?